Acts 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. You may be seated. The religious threaten witnesses to tell no one about the only one who saves. That's the gospel truth for Acts 4, 1 through 22. The religious threaten witnesses to tell no one about the only one who saves. This is a trial that the apostles have been uh, brought into by the religious leaders that 
mirrors pretty closely the trial that the Lord Jesus faced by the same men. And so we have two halves of this passage. The first half is in in verses 1 through 12, we have the witness. And then in verses 13 through 22, we have the jury. The witness, and then the jury. Point number one starts in verses 1 through 4. We have the apostles who are arrested by religious leaders. And I think Dr. Luke is explaining uh, to the man he's written this letter to, Theophilus, who is a, a new Christian uh, who, who came uh, from, from uh, outside of uh, the Jewish religion. And he is explaining to Theophilus how it is that the gospel can spread even though God's own leaders have rejected the gospel. And we see this in, in verse 4. We see that the church is, is growing since we saw them last in chapter 2 when there were 3,000 uh, who were believing. Now there's 5,000 and we're told there's 5,000 men, so including women and children. Surely this is a larger number than that. And Luke is teaching us that a servant is not greater than his master. Listen, church. We've sung words uh, from songs, these truths that, that we, we need to be reminded of. A servant is not greater than his master. If, if they rejected Jesus, if the religious leaders rejected our master, then they will reject us too. That is part of following him. We follow him in that. Verses 5 through 12. The witnesses take the stand. First uh, comes the cross examination by the Sanhedrin. This is the ruling body in the people of Israel. Look in verse 7. These religious leaders are, are coming out plainly with this question that, that we, we saw the, the confusion in chapter 3 of the, of the crowd, uh, that, that question that was begged by their confusion whenever Peter and John have healed this man who was born lame, that now the leaders of the people of God are asking them very plainly in verse 7, by what power or by what name did you do this healing of this man who we're told at the end of the passage is more than 40 years old, who they had all seen him begging at the gates of the temple, but now they hear him praising God in the midst of the temple. And I I want you to hear what is underneath the question of verse 7. It is not an honest question that is really seeking from a heart uh, that wants to honor God. It comes from hearts that reject Jesus. These are the same people who charged Jesus with doing healings by the power of Satan and not God. So when those same people ask the same kind of question, we get this point again. There is a kind of religious leader who cannot recognize the power of God whenever they see it. Verses 8 through 12, we have the testimony of Jesus' star witness, Peter, gives this testimony, which I will summarize in answer to their question. Peter says, we are saved 
by no other name than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In verses 9 and following, Peter's whole truth and nothing but the truth starts with this irony. And I want you to see this so that you will understand that there's a certain kind of religion. There's a certain kind of religious leader who puts people on trial for doing good. They are on trial for the same kinds of reasons this jury puts Jesus on trial for doing good, for healing a man who had only known suffering and sadness all of his life. The other day, I was walking with my kids into a store, and um, there's, a, there's a typical focus that I have whenever we are crossing a street or we're in traffic. And we were in Fort Worth at the time, so it's a lot busier. And my kids know the phrase, uh, see and reach. They, they, need to, they need to be where I can see them and where I can reach them. And one of my kids in particular really struggles to stay within my sight. He's always within my reach. But my Silas is often behind me. And when I looked behind him, uh, behind me that day, um, I noticed something I, I probably don't notice enough. And that's maybe the explanation for why he was behind me. He was he was examining stones. This is something my Silas always does. I remember one day Mickey told me, if there is a stick outside, Silas will find it. He, he, he searches for sticks. He searches for rocks. And he's always picking the best ones. And, and uh, every once in a while, Kelly will say, Silas, when you get out of the car, make sure you throw all the rocks away before you get into the house. He's always collecting rocks. He's discerning. He's always on the job. He's always examining. He's always selecting. When Peter is explaining that the power to heal is in the person who saves, Peter reaches for the Bible in verse 11. He reaches for Psalm 118. He reaches for the same passage that Jesus reached for in Luke chapter 20 when he was questioned by, by these very same men. In Psalm 118, God's people did not think that it was even possible for their king to survive this battle when he was up against all the worst enemies in all of the world. They just assume he's going to lose. And what ends up happening in Psalm 118 is God delivers the king from certain defeat. And so he's, he's going back to his people and he's, and he's proclaiming the good news that he has won the battle. And he's calling the priests in the temple to open up the gates so that he can thank God for saving him. And for what that means for God's people. He says over and over to the priests, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His steadfast love remains forever. And he says this, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. And then in response to how the priests don't trust Him, the psalmist says, to those who could not believe that the king could win and therefore would not thank God for his salvation. 
he says to the people who are leading in the temple. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Peter, when he quotes that psalm, is talking to the builders. He is talking to the religious leaders of God who were meant to build up God's temple, who were meant to serve God's people. And what Peter is doing is he's just reiterating Jesus' testimony to them that the one you crucified is the one who God has chosen. He is the cornerstone, which has been explained by another man as a, a cornerstone is a main oversized stone that joins two walls of a building. It's a choice stone that joins together two walls of a building so that it can bear their weight and their stress. A cornerstone is the stone that sets the direction to all the other stones. And it is as if the the leaders of God's people who should have known who to look for, should have known how to examine the stones in their path, when they're deciding what stone to pick to build up God's temple, they evaluate Jesus and they cast Him aside. They threw him away as being unfit for what they purposed. For the kind of house that they wanted, they did not want to build or use Jesus. They didn't want to build around Jesus. They crucified him. And Peter is saying to the builders, God has gone to that pile of the stones that you rejected. And He has found the the one that you crucified to be precious, to be most important. And God raised Him from the dead. Jesus has become the cornerstone. And so Peter is saying, you want to know about this man who's been healed. Well, this man and and I and John and these 5,000 others who have left your religion to follow Jesus, we are just stones that God is fitting around Jesus to build up His home where He lives. Friends, I want you to see in Acts 4, verse 12, one of the more famous verses in our book. I want you to see the exclusivity of the gospel and the inclusivity of the gospel. Verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What Peter is saying is we are asking about this guy getting a healing. And and when he's on the stand to give an answer about a physical healing, 
Peter then makes very clear that what happened to that man physically needs to happen to everyone spiritually. He says, our souls are crippled by sin. We, do you see that in verse 12? We need to be saved. We need to be made whole. You're looking at a man who is healed physically and you should see your needs spiritually. We, not just the Gentiles, but you and I, leaders of God's people, we have been separated from God for our sin and we need to be saved. And the work of that salvation, Peter says, is exclusively done. It is done by no one else Listen, it is not Jesus in partnership with some other name. You know this. It it is not Jesus in partnership with Joseph Smith. The Mormons have it all wrong. It doesn't matter that they claim to be Christians. It is the Jews are all wrong. It's not Jesus in partnership with with just generally God And, and, and And you're all wrong if what you're ultimately counting on whenever you face God on the judgment day is something that you have done, something that you have added to Jesus' work, your best efforts to be a good person. It's wrong. Jesus Christ is the exclusive foundation of God's temple. He is the stone that all other stones must be connected to because no one else fulfilled God's promise. God promised, I will choose my cornerstone after the builders cast him away. So listen, this is really easy in evangelism whenever someone says, well, how can Jesus be the Christ if he was rejected by his people? He must be the Christ because he was rejected by his people. How is it that Jesus can be the Christ when he died? Because God promised to save His Christ from certain defeat in Psalm 118. That's what He said. Everyone's going to be convinced that He was defeated, that He could not win that battle. Can defeat be any more certain than a cross? Jesus Christ holds the exclusive claim to the name of Savior because no one else is the Son of God. If God is building a house that is made not of stones, but of people, and God is going to live in that house, then those people's sins have to be judged. And those people's sins have to be removed. No one else's crucifixion could count for sinners. Jesus, the Son of God, perfectly righteous, perfectly sinless, need not die on his own, need not die for his own sins. And therefore, when he dies, he can die in the place of others. Jesus Christ is the exclusive Savior because God raised no one else. He raised his son from the dead to show that he was the Christ, that he had been chosen and selected after being cast away. Salvation is exclusively found in Jesus and in no one else. The Savior is exclusive, but He's also inclusive. Did you see that also in verse 12? Look at the end of verse 12. 
this name of the Savior is given to all men, to all women, to all boys and girls who are under heaven. In other words, God gives this name to everyone under heaven in an offer of salvation. He is inclusive. He doesn't just save Jews. He doesn't just save the down and out like this handicapped man. Isaiah says, whoever believes in the cornerstone will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in the cornerstone will not be put to shame. It's anyone and everyone who will place their faith in the rejected one, in the chosen one. So friend, if you're not following Christ, listen to me, your soul before your maker depends solely on your response to the Lord Jesus Christ and no one else. You've got to deal with Jesus. And here is what's going to happen. If you reject Jesus, if you don't live for Him as Lord, there is no other Savior. There is no one else who can save you. But if you believe in Him, there is no chance of shame. There is no chance whatsoever that you will be look you will look like a fool on the day of judgment if you trust in Christ he will save you so you need to decide we all need to decide what we will do with him the religious threaten witnesses to tell no one about the only one who saves after the witness gives his testimony Part number two of the trial is the jury in verses 13 through 22. The jury, verses 13 through 22. I want us just to remember Peter, the star witness. I want us to think about in this trial how far he has come. You remember whenever these men held that secret trial at night of Jesus. And, and, and during that trial, do you remember what someone accused Peter of? It's the same accusation that we find at the end of verse 13. These very words. You were with Jesus, weren't you? And he says, no. Peter swore that he was not with Jesus. And that does not surprise us. We are accustomed to witnesses lying. We're accustomed to witnesses who will say and do anything to to get free, especially when the stakes are high. We we know convicted criminals are famous liars. And so when this jury who had already condemned the cornerstone of God, when they are the ones who see what is chosen and precious to God and they crucify Him, when when they then are questioning the same man who refused to be counted with Christ, would He not be wondering after my testimony... Are they just going to walk me over to Pilate? Are they going to ensure that I have a cross? 
And surely Peter's thinking about this. And he will not lie. He, because it's true. Because he has witnessed what is true. He says the exact thing that led these same men to kill Jesus. Friends, I want you to consider where is it that Peter's boldness comes from? And verse 13 tells us it's not from seminary. He didn't get that from seminary. Peter and John were not officially trained like the scribes were trained. That's what it means to be uneducated. And yet they boldly testify to the professors of God's law and tell them what God's word really means. And the jury hears this and they are astonished. They recognize that these witnesses have been with Jesus because they are like Jesus. They are uneducated like Jesus was uneducated. And they are unafraid like Jesus was unafraid. That is the sign that someone has been with Jesus. And I want you to consider one of the most frequent excuses we give for not sharing our faith. It's the fear, isn't it, that we won't know how to answer a question. Christian, you don't have to wait for seminary. The star witness didn't wait for seminary because he had the Spirit. Verse 8, remember, it said that Peter was filled with the Spirit. And then he testified like this. The Spirit who empowered and, and Peter and made him bold to witness in such a way. The, the Spirit who Christ had promised to Peter and to all the disciples would, would come and he would, what, he would give them words in the moment, so that they could witness. Beloved, that is the same Spirit who lives in us. You don't need seminary if you have the Spirit. Verses 14 through 17, the, the jury then deliberates about what they're going to do. And I want you to see, this is not like uh, the, those, those courtroom dramas that we see on TV. You know, where the bad guys, they, they, they pay off. Uh, or they threaten one of these key jury members and he has to go into the deliberation. He has to persuade people who really know the truth to do, what, to do the bad thing that they know they shouldn't do. And then, and then they end up winning or justice ends up losing. That's not what we have here in this jury. The evidence of healing is incontrovertible. And the, this jury cannot deny the power of the Lord Jesus, and yet their decision, verse 17, is to use their authority. Listen to this. They're going to use their authority to keep that healing power from spreading to other people who need it. This is not a Roman jury. It is the religious who threaten witnesses to tell no one about the only one who saves. It is possible to be very religious 
and wholly opposed to God. We're told elsewhere that these leaders do not want to lose their power. There are whole churches that can be held captive by leaders who have discovered that religion is useful. Religion is a weapon that can manipulate people to get what the leaders want. You should pray for our leaders. We're not above this. Pray for the Lord to humble us. Religion can be a platform for rebellion. Religion can enable choice sins. Sins that the leaders want to keep on committing. They can make a way through their religion to promote that. Religion can create false gods that they actually like better than the real God. And they can, religion can be used by people to lead other, others to, to worship a God who, who saves the kind of people that, that those leaders find uh, uh, approvable and, 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 and that will condemn the kind of people that those leaders find disgusting. Religion does this. Just think about this. The supreme rejecter of God understands that religion is an appealing alternative. It is a securing substitute for the Savior. And so Satan uses religion to keep people from Christ. Just look at their decision in verses 17 and 18. In this sentencing phase of this trial, verses 18 through 20, I want you to look here at how religion is being used to keep people from Christ. I want you to hear again the exclusivity that we heard in verse 12. Listen, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name Under heaven, no other name given among men, no other name by which we must be saved. There's an exclusivity to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no one who will be saved apart from this one Savior. And then I want you to see the jury's version of exclusivity. And and here I mean they they mean to exclude everyone from hearing the saving name. Listen, the contrast of ultimate words that are used in verse 17. In order that it, the gospel may spread no further among the people. Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter says, we are saved by no other name. The jury comes back and says, never speak that name again. You're probably tired of hearing me give Harry Potter... um, illustrations, but since I'll be gone for a while, 
Um, uh, in this story, Brad, you don't have to leave now. Um, in this story, uh, there are these different groups of, 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 of students in the school, and each of the groups are, in, are, are sorted into these houses that reflect their personality. There's this one house in, in the story of kind of losers. They're, they're, they're the kind of rejects, and uh, I'm one of them. So uh, Hufflepuff is the name of this house. And um, one thing that you... One, 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 one thing that is characteristic of losers, of rejects, is uh, you start to find some pride in being a reject. And you just say things like, um, you start looking at the people who are more popular and you say, well, you, you find things wrong with them. Well, anyway, one, one, of these, one day I, was, I saw this picture or this, um, this shirt of uh, Hufflepuff that had this, um, this mascot of Hufflepuff strutting around. And the, the little phrase on there, this is going poorly, I'm sorry, it's going to be over soon. The phrase on there said, haters going to hate, haters going to hate. And what he's saying is, everyone always trying to hate on, on uh, Hufflepuff, uh, but they're just haters, uh, we're, we're really awesome anyway. Ooh, verses 19 through 20. 19 through 20. Um, the jury, it's as if the jury looks to Peter and says, do you have any final words? And it's like Peter is saying, rejectors are going to reject. And witnesses are going to witness. That's, you do who you are. You, you, you do what is, what is inside of you. What, who you are determines what you're going to do. Now, I, I don't know if Peter is a funny, funny fellow, but verse 19 was funny to me. Look, at, look again at verse 19. It's like he looks to this jury of powerful men. 71 powerful men. The most powerful men in Israel. And, and he says, esteemed ministers of justice. Let me just leave it to you to decide whether you think God would want us to obey him or to obey you when you command us to disobey God. I'll just leave that to your decision if you think that he's actually okay with us obeying you when you tell us to disobey him. But, verse 20, witnesses, witness. Verse 20, witnesses, witness. We saw Jesus rejected by men. And we, we saw him raised by God from the dead, we heard from him that we were to witness to others what we have witnessed. And so that is what we are going to do. And church, listen to what he says in verse 20. Peter tells us that witness of the Lord Jesus is born out of experience of the Lord Jesus. You see that in verse 20? Witness is born out of experience. We cannot speak, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. If we've seen it and heard it, the only thing that we can do is speak about it. Whoever has witnessed shall witness. Whoever has experienced salvation shall witness to the Savior. If 
witnesses witness. Follow this. If witnesses go on witness, then we need to witness in order to witness. You following? If witnesses witness, then we need to witness in order for us to go on and witness. One reason that continued hearing about Jesus is our utmost priority is because God has given witnesses work to do. So I I just want to give you this one last appeal before I go off on sabbatical during the summer. Summer is a time where so many in this community check out. I'm not saying you don't go on vacation and spend time with your family. Do that. But as much as you can guard the Lord's day, guard the Lord's day. You need to witness in order to do your job, which is to witness. You need to see and hear the Lord Jesus over and over again. This is why we're really careful to plan out the preaching for the sabbatical, to bring in faithful preachers who will will cause you to see and to hear the Lord Jesus because you've got a job to do. Aren't you grateful for the word but in verse 19? Aren't you grateful for the word but? In verse, sorry, 20. The jury's going to have to decide what they think they should do before God. But verse 20, Peter says, We are going to keep on speaking the name, the only name. If the saved tell no one, if the saved tell no one that there is no one else who can save, then no one else is going to be saved. If those who are saved tell no one that there's no one else but Jesus who can save, then no one else is going to be saved. God has ordained the way that everyone will be saved will be by hearing about the Savior. And God has sent His Spirit to fill witnesses with power And words to go out and tell others. There's no one else who can save you. And the reason is because no one will be saved unless they hear about the only one who can save. Beloved, spread the name. Spread the name. The religious leaders are pressuring them to spread the name no further. Spread the name. Last summer, our missionary, Adam, challenged us really helpfully. And he, he said, who is your, num- who's your one? Who's, who's your one? Who, who's the one person in your life that you're praying for opportunities to share the gospel with? Who's the one person in your life that you're looking for opportunities to share the gospel with? And maybe it's a good time just to remember that. 
and to think of one who you are especially focused on, but then everyone in your life. There's no one who can be saved except by Christ. And everyone in your life needs, must be saved. So let me give you three encouragements. Not just for the one person in your life, but for everyone in your life. Three encouragements that I've gotten from a man named Rico Tice, who's known for evangelism. Three encouragements. One, ask lots of questions. You've got to, you've got to, when you spend time with people who need to know the Lord Jesus, you need to be interested in them. And one way that you show that you are interested in them is ask them a lot of questions about their life and what's important to them. And that will open doors for what they're missing. You need to know them and care for them. Number two, chat your faith. Chat your faith. Just just do better about speaking of Jesus and your faith in Him more in your common conversation. When someone asks you some unimportant question like what you did this weekend, you should have an important response to that. Jesus should have determined what you did this weekend. Hopefully he had something to do with what you did this weekend. If someone is wondering how, how, how it is that you're handling that trial you're going through so well, chat your faith, speak about Jesus, drop his name in more conversations. But thirdly, we've got to pray. We need to pray more to faithfully witness and spread the name of Christ. It says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Why does it say that again after it says that that happened in chapter 2? Why does it say that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and then testified? I believe that while Christians are immediately filled with the Holy Spirit upon conversion, that we can experience a greater experience of the Holy Spirit at different times in our life. We can be more yielded or yes, less yielded. I've used the, the example of a balloon that is, if a balloon has air in it, it's full of air. But you can always put more air in it. And we can have more experience of the Holy Spirit and not quench Him, but yield in increasing ways to God's will for our life. And His will for our life is to give witness to Christ. And so Peter, when we're told he's filled with the Holy Spirit, we see Him doing what the Holy Spirit wants Him to do. But I can't just make myself do this. And you can't either. We need grace from God. We need His help. So pray, God, please help me to love the lost. Please fill me with Your Spirit that I might be able to faithfully risk everything in sharing the Gospel right now. Save them. He wants to do this. Pray for it. Spread the name. But as you're spreading the name, you're going to be following Jesus to religious rejection. Listen, Christian, listen. Refusing to be rejected with Christ is rejection of Christ. If you or I, in our comfort or in our silence, Refuse to spread the name of Christ because of fear of what kind of rejection we'll face with Christ. That is, according to Jesus in Mark chapter 8, spoken directly to this witness, Peter. It is rejection of Christ. It is being ashamed of Christ. And and, and, And Jesus promises Peter especially, if you are ashamed of me, 
When I return, I'll be ashamed of you. And you'll go to hell. Refusal to be rejected with Christ is rejecting Christ. So the pressure we face will be different than I think we see, thankfully, at this point, from what we see in the book of Acts. But you should expect, expect pressure to be silent. You may lose your friends if you will not approve of their sin. You may lose family members if you explain that they need to be saved and they're not good enough. You may lose favor with influential people in this community or in your career. I wonder why it is that Peter began verse 9 with addressing this group of people by saying, rulers, rulers, maybe because Psalm 118 is on his mind, which says, if the Lord is with me, what can man do to me? It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in rulers, to trust in princes. It's as if he's Reminding himself, be bold. Follow Jesus to man's rejection and you will follow Jesus to God's raising. That is our destiny as well. Verses 21 and 22, God is gracious to them. They can't, they can't, throw the, they can't punish them any further. In verses 22, 21 and 22, they have to release the apostles because the crowd is just so persuaded by the power of Jesus. You've heard those stories of how the mafia will silence a star witness. Part of persecution is not just prison. It's the pressure to be silent. It's the threat of what might happen. And what I've been convicted of this week is, is, is my witness today can be impacted by pressure that I don't feel the same way today, but I felt it years ago. And I'm still responding to it. Old pressure still is at work in me. I remember becoming a new Christian and, and being very vocal about my faith. I, and and this, um, in, the, in the career that I was in, uh, there was this Jewish friend of mine who warned me, why, why do you have your Bible sitting on your desk? And it, and it silenced me a little bit. She persuaded me that was unprofessional. It shouldn't be done. I remember sitting down in a professor's office and him saying that he, he was a Christian and, and, that, and that I was wearing my faith on my sleeve too much and you can't do that. And I think it affected me. So as I study this passage, I want to encourage you, please pray for me to spread the name of Christ. Please. I wonder what characterized you in this last week. What characterized you in this last week? Was it spread the name of Christ to everyone? Or were you more characterized by speaking to no one? A better question after we hear a word like this is what will this next week be like for you as a witness? The religious threaten witnesses to tell no one about the only one who saves. Oh God, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit. Lord, forgive me for being silenced too much. 
forgive us. And fill us with your spirit that we might spread the name of Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen.